2: On News Radio six eighty WPTF,
1: and I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
2: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour.
2: Well, Doug, there was another interesting article that we saw in the uh, the journal. Are you savvy enough to retire,
1: Linda? That is a very shocking uh, result that came from a survey, and. The real survey, was, it was sort of an attempt to understand how much do pre-retirees really know? Their ignorance was shocking. You know, when are reverse mortgages due? What triggers early withdrawal penalties?
2: What exactly is covered by Medicare again?
1: Because retirement planning is hard and most people really struggle to understand the fundamentals. Actually, in the survey, only 20% of the people who were in or near retirement passed a quiz about the very basics of retirement planning. Or to say it another way, 80% of the people who were quizzed, and these are ones who were very who are right near retirement, these were people, 1,000 people. Ages 60 to 75, they all had at least 100000 in assets, and yet 80% of them failed the quiz of basic knowledge. Now, the goal of the quiz, or the survey, was to get a sense of how informed people are as they approach retirement, and those who did the, uh, the survey were absolutely surprised just how bad the story was.
3: A lot of people were most stumped by questions about the strategies that could help their money last longer in retirement.
1: People often misunderstand the rules about drawing down their assets in retirement. And, you know, it's, uh, it's something that we have been very much aware of here in North Carolina. Linda, you know, many years ago when we opened up this radio program to allow the public to start calling us with questions. And our basic uh, thought was... There is a, an epidemic of financial illiteracy, and people need to know how to get right answers, real education. Well, and, apparently it hasn't changed. And don't wait until
2: two years before you retire. You have to plan.
1: And people forget that they need to start taking required minimum distributions from their individual retirement accounts and 401ks. And then some of the questions that were asked in the quiz were on complicated retirement products like annuities. Some were more focused on investing topics such as interest rate risk, mutual fund costs. My guess is if I were to ask the public today, if I were to do a random sampling of a thousand people, not many could explain what a PE ratio is. True. What's a PE ratio? Well, if you don't know what a PE ratio is, then how do you understand your mutual funds, you know, or your stocks? The confusion also highlighted another risk. And that was that people were overconfident about their retirement security.
3: I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah, more than half said that they felt that they were prepared to meet their income needs in retirement.
1: Yeah. And probably, you very, know, they will be shocked scary, to Very scary because most people underestimated their longevity, putting them at risk of drawing their savings down too long. People are going to live a lot longer than they think. So, this was a good survey, but you don't have to be frightened if you're out there. You need to go ahead and just call us. Call us and make an appointment.
2: Thank you for joining us on Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call me, Deborah
3: Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919 872 7000. 919 872
2: 7000. Well, Doug, what are the advantages and disadvantages of investing
1: in preferred stock? Well, Lynn, as the name implies, preferred stockholders often receive better treatment than common stockholders. Preferred stock usually pays a higher dividend than common stock pays. However, preferred stock pays a fixed dividend. Dividends on common stock can float. The company also pays its dividend to preferred stockholders before it pays common stockholders. And most importantly, preferred stockholders stand a better chance of getting some cash if the company fails or goes bankrupt and liquidates its proceeds to creditors and investors.
2: And here's a question that has to do with IRAs. How often can one change the IRA custodian?
1: Well, Lynn, it depends on how you do it. Once a year, you can call your current IRA custodian and ask for a check and then send that cash on to another IRA custodian within 60 days. There's no limit on how often that you can have one custodian transfer your account directly to another IRA custodian. The trustee-to-trustee transfers can be without limit.
2: So that means don't let them give you the check, right? Let it pass from custodian to custodian.
1: Right. And that's typically the way you should do it. Send, Do a trustee-to-trustee transfer. You can do as many of those in a year. The IRS does not limit those types of transfers. If you're retiring or have been terminated and you've got a pension, a 401k or some sort of large retirement plan at your company, you also can have that money sent to you. If you do, the employer must take out 20% and send that to the IRS. So basically, that's about a fifth of the money. Then in addition to that, you've got to pay a 10% penalty on that money on the entire amount. So to avoid that penalty, you should make sure that you only do a trustee-to-trustee transfer. If you tell your employer that you're going to be setting up an IRA rollover and you want that 100000 or 75000 that you've accumulated through the years in your 401k plan, have that sent directly over to your new trustee, then there is no withholdings requirement and there is no 10% penalty, the same as on the IRAs.
2: So, Doug, that money that's withheld, let's say someone did, you know, have, uh, the check given to them. And Uncle Sam's going to take out the 20%, correct? All right. When do you get that 20% back?
1: Let's work the numbers and see. Let's say $100,000. alright right. Let's say a guy's got $100,000 in his 401k plan. Okay. And he retires and he says, send me the money and I'm going to do with it what I want. And I'll probably open up an IRA. All right. His employer is going to hold out $20,000. He's going to get 80. Now, if he decides he wants to set up an IRA, then all he's got to send is $80,000. If he sends that $80,000 over, Uncle Sam is going to say that he was supposed to send over $100,000. So he's going to be shy $20,000, and they're going to tax him on that $20,000. And they're also going to charge him a 10% penalty on that $20,000. That's another $2,000. But he can file for a refund for the twenty thousand that was withheld. But he's not going to get the whole twenty thousand back because he's going to pay All about maybe taxes. six thousand of taxes on the twenty thousand and another two thousand. So maybe eight thousand of it's gonna be kept from him and he won't get the twenty thousand back. He'll only get about twelve back because he did it that way.
2: So he can eventually get it back just
1: after. After taxes have been taken out of it.
2: Okay. So do the trustee to do trustee the- <laughs>
1: transfer. <laughs> yeah, don't take possession of it.
3: If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website,
2: DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Well, Jim had a question. He's 25 and he was thinking of a whole life insurance policy as an investment plan. Do you think this is a good idea, Doug?
1: No, 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 no. And why not? Life insurance is designed to protect your loved ones in case you die. Whole life policies give you protection, but you also build up the cash value of your policy as you pay the premium. The returns, though, probably won't be spectacular because commissions and fees that you're likely to pay and because much of your money pays for coverage, not investments. However, your earnings will accumulate tax-free until you withdraw them. But in my opinion, Lynn, if you're looking for a monthly investment plan, you're much better off looking into a mutual fund family. Don't try and make a chicken into a duck. Insurance is not an investment. Insurance is insurance is insurance.
2: Okay. And what are zero coupon bonds, Doug?
1: Well, these are bonds, Lynn, that pay no interest until they mature. You buy these bonds at a deep discount from their face value. The biggest advantage of zeros is that they reinvest your interest at the same rate for as long as 30 years. But the one big disadvantage is you've got to pay taxes on that interest just as though you received it each year. So you're better off putting zeros into a tax-deferred account like an IRA. That way, you're not paying taxes on the accumulation as it builds up. Also, if you sell that zero coupon bond before the bond matures, you could get a whopping shock because zero coupon bonds tend to fluctuate wildly.
2: And if you'd like more information, you can call me at the office, and the number there seven two seven thousand, and I'll be happy to send you some information. Well, Doug, let's take our next caller.
1: Well, Ken, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening?
4: Yes, um, I have two IRAs. I'm planning to switch into something because it's with the bank and it's drawing practically nothing in income. And I've had a couple of calls, and uh, they are offering uh, no-load mutual funds at about 15.6. I don't see why I shouldn't go with them, and they have a good track
1: record. How do you mean at 15.6?
4: Well, uh, they tell me that
1: that's a net income. I see. Well, you know something, Ken? What? I think that's a wonderful deal. You're telling me that you can go ahead and get something absolutely for free, pay no commission, and get a guaranteed 15% income. That's
4: what they say.
1: Uh Uh-huh. If you look at it carefully, you'll see that they're defining what they call total return, and that's not income.
4: The agent said that... The track record for the last five years was about
1: 18. All right. He's talking about how much the money has grown. That's the to total return, not how much dividend or interest it's paying. Let's think of chickens and eggs, okay? Okay. All right. You can go ahead and get five chickens, all right? Yeah. Now, now, those chickens, if they're going to lay an egg a day, how many eggs are you going to get? Five a day. You got five eggs, okay. right? On the other hand, if you feed those chickens a lot of feed, And they actually gain on you a couple of extra pounds. Yeah. Okay. Their growth in weight, they're getting fatter and fatter. They might have gained 10% in weight, which means if you kill that chicken, you can have more meat on the table. On the other hand, the eggs haven't changed, have they? Right. You've still got five eggs. Yeah. What you're looking at, those numbers are talking about combining the eggs and the chicken meat, slaughtering the chicken and then looking at how much it all sits on your plate.
4: Well, why do they mislead you like that?
1: Well, here's your real question. The real question is not how come they mislead, but how come they don't educate me more? You have not been adequately educated, and you need to be adequately educated, and you need to be educated as to the risks and the returns. This is Deborah Lewis. Call
3: 919-872-7000. To set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation, call me at
2: 919-872-7000. How much is in the IRAs?
1: Yeah, how much do you have? Uh, what, what's your investment portfolio oh, look about like? about
4: 25000 in that, but uh, I have real estate. And...
1: No, that's not a liquid investment. What do you have in the way of liquid investments?
4: Uh, a bunch of stocks and bonds and stuff.
1: How much do you have in stocks and bonds? Oh,
4: I don't know. My wife says I'm worth
1: over a million, but uh, I don't think so. Well, yeah, but you mean now? There's another problem. If you don't know how much you have in stocks and bonds, then you should be shame on you. You should know what you've got. I don't really care. I got enough to live until I die. Well, you see now what you're doing when you portray a picture of yourself like that to that guy on the other phone, on the other end of the phone. I can see what he's thinking. He's thinking, boy, I got a sucker here. There is a proper way to approach your world, and the proper way is to go ahead and do what we call an asset allocation model. An asset allocation model first looks at the total amount that the client has to work with. Then, what are the living expense needs of the client? What's the age? What's the income? etc. Then to go ahead and break down into a certain amount of money in each type of investment. If a person has $500,000, then we might put no more than, say, 40000 or 50000 in any one. If they only have 200000 we put maybe no more than 20000 in any one. And then that one that we're talking about would probably be a pool of money, managed monies. Mutual funds are ideal. But then we come to what kind of mutual funds? And for a person 76 years old, I'd be very hesitant about putting you into aggressive mutual funds. And especially if the person asked me for a a quotation on net yield of how much it's paying, then I know what he's asking me for is income. You should really know what you're doing. You should have the comfort and the confidence that the planner you're working with is educating you as to what each piece of your portfolio is. If you're not getting that education, then something is missing. If you, I think you
2: need a financial planner, Ken. I think you need someone that can help you look at your whole situation because otherwise you're just going to be taken in with salespeople. If you would like some more information, you can call me at the office. Yes. And the number is 872-7000.
4: 872-7000.
2: Yes, sir. And we're here in Raleigh, All and right. I'll be happy to give you some more information or take down your questions. All right. And then, you know, if if you would like, you can gather your information together, and Doug can analyze all of this for you and give yeah. you some specific advice. All right. Okay, and thanks for calling. Well, Doug, there, um, you know, as the show has been going on, we've been talking about various investment vehicles, and there is one that is called, well, it's an acronym, REIT, R-E-I-T. What is a REIT, and how are the REIT dividends next well uh actually that was really
3: um uh, a good call i was going to comment on that and the fact that it was um uh, timely but in regard to REITs themselves the REIT is an acronym for real estate investment trust and that's a pool of real estate inside a
1: company The REIT, we've been talking about REITs for a long time, and I guess a lot of people still aren't clear. The REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, the REIT itself is a very, very popular investment vehicle these days. More and more in the last, I would say, two years, three years, they have grabbed the attention of the public because they have a special law directed by the Act of Congress that says they are a stock That doesn't pay corporate dividend, corporate taxes, which means there's more money that goes out as dividends to the shareholders. Take IBM, for example. The profit IBM makes, they pay tax on. What's left after that tax goes to the investor who's the shareholder of the IBM stock. But if the stock happens to be a REIT, a real estate investment trust, then there's no corporate tax, which means there's a lot more that goes out, and that's why the REITs are so popular. They pay a very high dividend. They actually compete with another type of product out there, the MLP, the mol, the, um, uh, the, oh. the 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 limited Mortgage. partnerships. are called MLPs, which are trading and everything, the master limited partnerships. Master limited. But my point is that the REIT itself is a it's a stock of a company that owns a lot of real estate. Okay. Highwoods Properties is one. Public Storage Mini Warehouses is one. Hilton Hotels is another. Now, REITs make distributions to their shareholders, and they retain the tax characteristics of what happens inside the REIT. And what and what makes them so interesting is that each one of those REITs has a different set of tax characteristics, you could make a general statement, because we do an awful lot in our office with these for our clients' portfolios. Bottom line, about half of the dividend that goes out, even though it's much higher than any other type of investment generally, is even so, half it's tax-free or tax-deferred. Now, the common wisdom is that REIT distributions are taxed as ordinary income taxed at the investor's highest rate, but the some REITs distribute no ordinary income and others 100% ordinary income and that's because what's happening inside the REIT depreciation for example can be passed out and many of them do pass out and these payments then are considered return of capital which lowers the cost so the the actual how are REIT dividends taxed i like to say less than other types of dividends.
2: And isn't it true, Doug, that this taxable income is from the operating
1: profits of the REIT? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But the uniqueness about it is the profits of a normal business are ordinary income. The profits of these can be depreciating income. Mm-hmm, it can, mm-hmm. So it's very. it can be long-term capital gain. It can be short-term capital gain. In any case... The whole story of REIT dividend taxes and REIT payouts is very attractive. Isn't it true also, Doug, that these payments um, are
2: considered a return of capital that lowers one's uh, cost basis? Well, part of it can be. Go ahead, Doug.
1: Yeah, th- some of it can. That's As I say, each one is going to be different. Some is return of capital, uh, but the I think the shorter answer is, I like to say about half of the REIT dividend is tax free.
2: Okay. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified
3: Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Call me at 919 872 7000. 919 872 7000.
1: Well, Doug, let's take a caller now. Okay, Richard, Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
5: Uh, good evening. I'd like to just. Uh, see if I get some input from you as to what's an appropriate rule of thumb in purchasing life insurance.
1: Mm, no such thing as appropriate rules of thumb. The okay. appropriate rule of thumb is make sure that you've got the right amount. You don't have too much or too little. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, if, how old are you? Uh, 35. 35 years old. <clears throat> Excuse me. Married or single? Married. Married. Any children? Uh, yes. One. One child. How old? Uh, 18 months. All right. A new, uh, a new one. Uh, income?
5: Uh, combined incomes of
1: no. I need. Um, I need. I need individual. Let's
5: say around sixty
1: for the husband. Yes, husband sixty and the wife about forty. About forty. All right. Uh, what are your personal assets? Your investment assets look like? For example, what do you have in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, cash? All of your non-investment. Um, your your non-retirement investments. Uh, say about fifty thousand. Fifty thousand in investments. They're all liquid now. Now, United United Accounting Real Estate. There, that's correct. Okay. Uh, what else do you have? How about retirement assets?
5: Um, probably somewhere in the neighborhood
1: of uh, forty. Forty thousand in retirement funds. These are in your name. I mean, uh, this, yeah. this is your retirement. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, the first thing we want to do. Do you know what your living expenses are running?
5: Uh, yeah, approximately.
1: All right. How much are your living expenses running?
5: We're looking at uh, roughly. Thirty-two
1: hundred or so uh, a month. All right. Let's see. You're spending thirty-eight thousand a year. Must be spending more than that, unless you just started. Did you just start that. Your income just. I. I can't see you making a hundred thousand, only spending thirty-eight thousand, and all you've accumulated is fifty thousand in investments. Unless. Uh,
5: uh, th- there's there's some uh, uh, special circumstances involved with with where we're at.
1: Well, what the real key to the insurance is the is the living expenses. Mm -hmm. And so we need to find out what the expenses are. Uh, I can use 38,000, but I'd be a little nervous because what 38,000 says is if you die, your wife doesn't need any insurance because her income will support. You see what I'm saying? Cause she's making 40. Uh, What I generally do is I try and get a total expense and be very, um, well, I want to say conservative, meaning push your expenses, go through a living expense analysis to find out if the husband dies, what does the wife need to live on mm-hmm. and what does she want to live on? Not only need, don't be real penny pinching there. Then I do the same thing with the other one. Once I've got that figure, then I go ahead. And of course, with with one, like, let's say if you were to die, well, of course, right now, I guess you've got to have bad daycare though anyway, don't you, for your child? That's correct. Okay. So that's already in your expense budget. All right. If you're spending, let's say, thirty eight thousand, all right, on your expenses, then that's about fifty nine thousand is what you need to, to make before tax. Fifty-nine thousand before tax would be you need to have about eight hundred and forty thousand of insurance if you had no investments. In other words, 840,000 of insurance would produce 50. Well, wait a minute, excuse me. Got 59, we got 59,000 we have to make. If she's going to go ahead and make 40, then there'd only be 19 left. I take the 19,000 and that would say I need about 300,000 of insurance to go ahead and cover because 300,000 would produce 19,000 a year in income. Then I go ahead and plug in the investments that you have to see how much that would produce. But if you've only got 50000 of investments, that's only going to, at best, produce about 3500 a year, and she needs 19000 a year. Okay. On the other hand, from what you're telling me, you probably, well, you could use a little insurance on her. $60,000, you are making 60000 Is it stable income? Yes. Uh, you're real close to where you probably don't need much insurance on her.
3: This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000 to speak about your situation and to set up an appointment. 919-872-7000.
1: So, looking at the need portion, I would say that to be safe, you might go ahead and have about 300,000 on yourself and maybe 100,000 on her. The other approach would be, or not the other approach, the other piece to bring into the equation would be, all right, once I know my need, then what kind of insurance would I get? Sure. Well, and that comes back to your income. If your income is 100000 and your expenses are only 38000 do you know how much you're able to save monthly?
5: Uh, exclusive of retirement? Yes. Um, Hard to say right now, Doug.
1: That's an important factor. Okay. Because we, because if indeed there's a large discretionary amount, let's say for example that you're saving, that you're able to save about two thousand or three thousand a month. Mm-hmm. If indeed you're able to save that, then we want to run forward x number of years and see how much you will accumulate, how long it will take you to accumulate before you self-insure. Okay. Because there's no reason if you've got a large enough discretionary income, meaning the excess of income over outflow for you to think that I've got to go ahead and keep buying insurance. Insurance should be a necessary evil that you participate in, so to speak. Which brings us down to the point that you want to get the cheapest kind of insurance. If you're young, y- which you are, then level term is the ideal vehicle for you. Okay, y- You could probably get a half a million dollar policy for, I don't know, I'd take a ballpark and say probably less than, oh, a thousand a year, my guess would be, I. Uh, maybe eighty-three uh, $85 a month, something like that. I don't know. I'd have to go ahead and check some companies. But I doubt if you'd have to pay much. Mm-hmm. And maybe you pick up a, a 15 or 20-year level term policy, which says I've got 15 years where the premium stays the same. Mm-hmm. It builds up no cash value. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I've got a discretionary income where I'm funding an investment plan of at the rate of 2000 a month. I can run my numbers and see that I will well exceed any need for insurance before that 15 years is over.
5: Okay, that seems to make
1: sense. Right. So that's the approach I use. In my office, I actually work with a computer and do some more serious numbers. But uh, the rule of thumb, if you were looking for a rule of thumb, is get the only the amount that you need to support, to produce enough income to support your present lifestyle today, and then run another t- uh, tabulation to find out at the investment savings rate, when will I not need to insure at all? Mm-hmm. Does, does that help, Richard? No, I think that's
5: most insightful, and I appreciate that. Uh, that assistance. Great.
2: Okay. And, if, and if you'd like any further information, you can call me at the office, and I'll be happy to send you uh, that introductory packet. And the number in Raleigh is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand eight seven two seven thousand. Okay. Super. Thanks. For All right. Thanks for evening. calling. Alrighty. Bye bye. Well, you know, Doug, I've had a number of people calling uh, recently, uh, pre retirement issues, and someone called me and wanted to know, how do I deal with early retirement options?
1: He was given certain options, right? and he was offered this early retirement package. Exactly. Now, what do we know about him?
2: Well, he said that he's 57, and he works for a major corporation and has been there for 20 years, and he wanted to know, what do I do? Uh, The company's offered me the opportunity to take early retirement.
1: And we never know what that exactly means, but I guess maybe he and his wife uh, were excited about it?
2: Yeah, they were excited, but they were also very confused about the options. And he basically said that the letter that the company sent to him offered him a monthly check for $1,700 a month.
1: Okay, a $1,700 check for life. That was one option, huh?
2: Yes, yes, indeed. Okay. But he also said that if he wanted, he could have a lump sum of 332000 Now, obviously, that's a lot of money, and he said that he was also told that if he took the lump sum, that he could do something called an IRA rollover with (laughs) the lump. But then he was warned that if he didn't do this IRA rollover, that he would face some severe tax
1: penalties. Yeah, well, I guess he was confused because those are the types of options that people are being faced with. But you know it's not all that difficult, Linda. Let's let's give him a name. Let's give him Ralph's name. Let's call him Ralph, okay? okay? So the question is what would Ralph do? How would Ralph go through the decision-making process in taking the check, the monthly annuity or taking the lump sum? Option 1 Linda was a $1700 a month check for life and of course nothing goes to his kids. Option number 2 was to take a $330,000 lump sum and pay tax, but be able to keep it. This means he would have been left with about $230,000 if he invested that money in a good portfolio of investments. Right. And there was a third choice, which is the one that a lot of people want to know about, and it's called the IRA rollover. And in that case, he opens up an IRA rollover account at an independent trust company, puts the whole 332000 in the IRA, and pays zero taxes then he gets to invest the $330,000 in a diversified portfolio himself. Now, if he's under 59 and a half years old, he may or may not have to pay this extra 10% penalty when he starts taking checks out. But even if he did pay the penalty, Lynn, it would still leave him about $2,500 a month. And then, of course, after he reaches age of 59 and a half, he'd get the whole $2,700 a month. And the big thing to me is if he invests wisely in some conservative mutual funds, It's very possible at age 80, he could leave his kids and the state. So I think, I don't know about you, but in his (laughs) case, what do you think?
2: I think the answer is obvious. Do the IRA rollover. right? You know, Doug, there are so many people out there that are going through this, and we certainly have gotten a lot of them calling in at our office that I have spoken to. So if you are facing an early retirement situation, or you have some questions regarding uh, what to do about an IRA rollover. You can call us here at the station tonight or you can call us at the office in Raleigh at 919 872 919 And uh, we'll be happy to send you some information. But Doug, wouldn't you agree that it's important to write your questions down and work with a financial planner?
1: Yeah, even one person came to me recently and they had gone through a whole decision tree trying to figure out if I do it one way, if I do it the other way, how do I do it? And they had several different types of pieces to their equation.
2: Okay, well, Doug, what exactly is a lump sum distribution as we're talking here about retirement? What is this lump sum distribution?
1: Well, technically, Linda, it's a payment or payments from a pension or a profit sharing plan. And it represents all contributions made by the employee or the employee or by the employer, as well as our earnings on those.
2: Well, is there any portion of this distribution that is tax-free?
1: Well, if the distribution includes after-tax contributions that the person made to their retirement plan, then they don't pay any tax on those, and they are always taken out in cash. They actually don't even qualify to be an IRA rollover.
2: And, Doug, must a person leave their job to receive their retirement plan money?
1: Well... Not necessarily, although that's the most common reason, but you might be offered a payment or payments If your company uh, terminates its retirement plan or if you become disabled.
3: Well, Doug, uh, when we went in the world of charitable remainder trusts and when we think about these, most people think of appreciated securities or cash.
1: Yeah, it's that time of year, you know, when all of the universities and the charities are sending out invitations to uh, to get involved with a charitable remainder trust. Uh, I went to Washington Lee University many, many years ago, and I went to Columbia University, and both of them are very quick to send invitations that we can do charitable tax planning using a charitable remainder trust. But, Deborah, as you said, most of the time we think of just appreciated securities.
3: And and there's actually um, a whole nother segment of of appreciated items which can be real estate and and we I guess we really need to talk about well what's the difference between both of those
1: yeah real estate differs very much real estate sometimes is even more beneficial for a uh, a, a, a funding of a charitable remainder trust we call them CRTs. But uh, the one ability, of course, or the disadvantage or the difference, I would say, is that it takes longer to sell the real estate than to sell sell some stocks that you contribute. Okay. Um, But then there's the capital gain issue. And there's also the 3.8% net investment income tax that can be avoided. So the charitable trust can be used not only to liquidate the real estate and reinvest the proceeds and pay no capital gains tax, you also can avoid the 3.8% tax.
3: All right. Well, Doug, um, if if someone's listening right now, can you give us some examples of when a person might find it attractive to fund a charitable remainder trust using real estate?
1: All right. Let's take a person. Okay. We'll, uh, a couple. We'll take Tom and Joan. Okay. Now, let's say they own some vacation property. And it's appreciated. It's gone up significantly in value. But they know if they sell it, they're going to owe capital gains tax. And they're going to bump into that new 3.8% net investment income tax on their profits. So, instead, they can transfer that home to a charitable remainder unitrust. And then they can they can name... a charity as the remainder beneficiary. They can even make it their own foundation as the beneficiary. Okay. Or they can make it NC State University or the Salvation Army. Then the trustee, however, of this charitable trust can sell the property, pay no capital gains tax at all, reinvest in a diversified portfolio, and start paying Tom and Joan an income for the rest of their lives
3: so, in a way, they have created uh, a way to avoid the capital gains tax and create a pension-like income stream for themselves.
1: One more thing, Deborah. Yes. They actually get an income tax charitable deduction in the year they open this thing up. Wow. So, it's got a lot of power behind it. Now, that's an individual.
2: That's a win 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 situation.
3: It isn't
1: is. It? It's a triple win situation, Linda.
3: If you need help, call me, Deborah Lewis, 919 872 7000. 919 872 7000.
1: But now there's another way. All right. It, can be a, it doesn't have to be an individual. Let's say it's a closely held company. Okay. All right. And let's say they own a, a big piece of vacant land. All right. So we'll call this closely held company XYZ. They own vacant land. They no longer need the the, uh, the land any longer. The company is currently paying insurance and real estate taxes on the property, and they got to keep it maintained. So the company now could create a charitable remainder trust that lasts for 20 years. Okay. The charity's not going to get it for 20 years, but the trust can sell the property, pay no tax, okay. reinvest it into investments. And give a steady source of income while at the same time satisfying the philanthropic goals of the shareholders. Very nice. Very so, nice. So
2: let's say, for example, that vacant land was worth between 750 and a million dollars. Now they've taken
3: something that was just a a drain on the cash flow and they've created an income stream.
1: That's right. Wonderful. That's exactly right. Now, for a company, you can only do it 20 years. For a couple, you can do it for life. Okay. How about an apartment building owner? Okay, let's say we've got an owner of an apartment building. He wants to retire to a different part of the country. Okay. The property could be used to fund a charitable remainder trust that's going to pay retirement income. Again, avoiding the capital gains tax, provide the owner with an income tax deduction, and again, benefit charity. Well, this is
3: really, really exciting because we've touched on a lot of different scenarios that
1: might um, be the scenarios of some of our listeners. There's a fourth type of uh, of individual, and I meet a lot of them here in North Carolina. Okay. These are the 1031 tax-free exchange people. All right. Okay. This is the guy who's had real estate, and he has continually traded it for another piece of real estate and never paid the tax. So, over the years, he has traded up, acquiring more and more valuable pieces of property through these like-kind exchanges. Well, while capital gains taxes have been postponed, the investor eventually is going to have to recognize the capital gain when that property is sold. Right. That is true. However, if parcels are used to fund a charitable remainder trust... The capital gains again can be avoided 100% when the trustee sells the parcels and then allows the investor to enjoy the payments based on the full market value and for the rest of their life. And you know what? I personally think the best way is when the individual who sets up the trust is his own trustee. You're right. just moving something from one pocket to another.
3: Now, these are quite complex. I mean, they offer a lot of possibility to, um, to be very tax savvy and, and, and do a lot of tax planning here, but they're complex.
1: They're complex, and yet when you think about them, when of course, I guess for us, they're quite simple because we've been doing them for so many years and everything, but the simplest way to think of it is you can turn this piece of dirt into a pension for yourself and get a tax deduction for it while you're doing it. Wonderful. You wonderful. know, there are
2: so many folks out there, and whether it's you inherited stock and it's appreciated in value, or... You live in another state or another country, and you have this piece of property that you don't want to be a a landlord anymore, and you would like to sell that property. Or maybe it's farmland that family has owned for decades, and you're... a.
3: Uh, traveling, you know. uh, Right, you do something else and this is not your passion. So you'd like to do something uh, about it, make it create some some either wealth or some income for you. Exactly. And uh, this is a great way to do it. Awesome. That was an excellent story, Doug. If you hear something tonight that sounds like your situation, Call us. Set up an appointment. We can help you. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000.
2: Doug, what's new in the world of investment planning?
1: I think we've got a good checklist of the big mistakes that people make consistently in financial planning and in money matters. Some people make the big mistake of doing nothing. They keep a lot of money just in their checking accounts, and the money just sits there, and that's probably one of the worst mistakes you can make, but they get frustrated and do nothing. And another mistake is people really buy on a cold call. One of the dumbest things possible is hearing somebody call and try and sell you something over the phone from a stock brokerage firm, and people actually do that, but they buy on what's called a cold call. And another foolish mistake is trying to buy last year's hot investment. The investment that did so well last year, it made the top of the list. Sure enough, after you buy, it drops to the bottom. But that's so typically why it ran to the top of the list this past year. Buying last year's hot investment was the third. One of the big mistakes that people make is forgetting to watch an investment after they buy it. And they just think that it's going to forever go up. And they forget that everything that goes up, goes down. There's another mistake that people make, with which is really quite foolish sometimes.
2: And that has to do with getting bonds backwards, right, Doug? When the interest rates go up, your bond prices head down. But some people just don't get that inverse relationship in correctly anticipating that interest rates are headed up. They buy bonds instead. Well, these people believe that if bond interest rates are going up, that they'll capture those higher yields when they will really be losing their principal. So basically, it's a situation where they get confused, right, Doug?
1: Yeah, it's a a common mistake, Lynn. People get the whole story on bonds backwards, and they think that the news that interest rates are going up is good news for them. It's bad news for bond investors, and ultimately they become very embarrassed. What other mistakes can you think of?
2: Well, some people think that fixed income is fixed value, and they apply the same faulty logic to the bond mutual funds, not realizing that they can lose money in such a fund if the interest rates rise enough. Right, Doug?
1: Yeah, that's right, Lynn. And what uh,
2: can you think of another one, Doug?
1: Yeah, I can think of another one. Thinking a guarantee is a guarantee. The whole word guarantee really confuses people. For example, insured bonds protect you from default, but market conditions can still bring you a big loss in your portfolio. So your bonds may be insured, but that only means if you hold them until maturity. That doesn't mean along the way. And people also get really confused about the guarantees with tax-deferred annuities. Uh, They're guaranteed, those variable annuities are only guaranteed, by the way, if you die. If you don't die, there's no guarantee there at all. So uh, some people see guarantees wherever they look. They see guarantees when things don't even exist, for example. Many people think that mutual funds, like bank deposits, are federally insured, and they're not. There really are very few guarantees in the world of investing. So that's a big mistake.
2: Our number in Raleigh is 8727000. 8727000.
1: What what mistakes have we missed?
2: Well, there's another one and that has to do with overdoing a tax advantage. Many people lose track of the fact that the main advantage of an IRA or an individual retirement account is that this type of account allows investments to grow tax deferred until the money's withdrawn. Right, Doug? But what some people do is they fill these IRAs with tax tr- tax-free instruments such as municipal bonds, and that's redundant at best, but many investors do this. Right, isn't Doug? It,
1: isn't that amazing? They put tax-free municipal bonds inside an IRA, and I see that a lot.
2: Don't put any tax-free instruments in your IRA. Right.
1: <laughs> and another mistake people make, Lynn, is putting investments in the wrong name. You know, uh, elaborate estate planning is often undone By this very common mistake, because if property is held in joint name with right of survivorship, which everybody thinks so often is the best thing you can do, it's the worst thing you can do. Never own anything jointly. But so many people own things jointly and then all of their estate planning is torn apart because nothing works right if it's jointly owned. So uh, you've really got some problems there. If you change the ownership of your house and give one of your children joint tenancy with rights of survivorship, then... Uh, you can even do further damage because one of the children won't end up with any share of the house. And the last step, of course, or the last mistake is neglecting to take the final step. Many people go to great lengths, Lynn, in uh, doing exotic trust, revocable living trust, estate plans, but then they never fund these trusts. And so they've paid the money for an estate plan, but they haven't put it into, pra- into, into action and they die and it never happened so I think we've got a good checklist there of the big mistakes that people make consistently in financial planning and in money matters.
2: And if you'll call the office, I can send you some information. Our number in Raleigh is 872 And maybe we can, you know,
1: go over this a little bit more. Well, Linda, do you have any writings you wanted to go ahead and ask?
2: Yes, I certainly did. I had a lot of them. And one thing that kind of concerned me, Doug, was how important it is for people to do financial planning, right? Uh, I think we had some folks that were scheduled to come in. And at least in two instances, there were family members that had taken ill between the time that they made the appointment and they were going to come in. And you never know when something can happen. You can get cancer, you could be in a car accident. And it's important for people to get a handle on where they're at and where they want to go. Don't
1: you think? You're right, Lynn. You really are, because you only know when you failed to plan after it's too late. Planning has to be done before the unknown occurs. You don't start a trip and halfway through the trip decide now I'll get myself a map. You have to have the map before you begin the trip if you're gonna plan the trip properly. And that's exactly exa- yeah, and that's exactly I hear it all the time. I'll start planning after I reach this point or that point. Well, that's sort of backwards reasoning. <laughs> You need the planning before you get to that point.
2: Exactly. And I'll speak to people and they'll say, well, I know I have some money in the retirement account, but I don't know how much I have. (laughs) And people need to know what they have and how much because they just need to plan. Don't you think?
1: Right. We need to look at taxes, cash flow, investments, retirement and estate, lay out a plan and know where we're going and how to get there
2: work with a financial planner. And if you have any questions locally, you can call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Let's take
1: another caller. Gil, is that you? Yes. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
6: Good afternoon, sir. I am 45 and for various circumstances in my life, I was not able to start saving for retirement until about three years ago. I'd like to know what can I do to maximize the amount that I could generate for retirement, while still maintaining a, a reasonable degree of safety for my funds.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Gil. How you say you're forty-five years old? I'm
6: forty-five. You married or single? I'm married, three small children.
1: What's your income, Gil?
6: About one hundred and fifty.
1: All right, so you're making one hundred and fifty. Is your wife working? No. All right, so that's the only income. Do you know what your living expenses are? Um, roughly about six
6: thousand dollars a month.
1: All right, so you're spending about six thousand a month at seventy-two thousand a year. Um, let me ask you this now: What have you accumulated so far in the way of personal investments?
6: Uh, uh, we've got some money in, in uh, mutual funds, about twenty-five thousand or so. Twenty-five thousand,
1: and which funds are you in, or what kind of funds are they?
6: Uh, we've got about half and half. One is a, one is a growth and in income, and the other is a short-term bond.
1: All right. Um at your age, you don't want to be in a short-term bond fund for sure. What about um retirement plans, Gil? Uh have I you, do you have a retirement plan?
6: I do not have anything else. I do okay. not have any.
1: Okay. Uh I can understand why you're concerned. What you need because you're right. Uh, that's uh that's a pretty tough. How old are your kids?
6: Four, 3
1: and uh, 20 months. All right. So you've got yeah, you've got a Tough situation. What you should do, but the good thing is you've got a decent income. Yeah. Um, what you need to do uh, is number one, you need to do a living expense analysis before anything else. Okay. Uh, you need to set up an appointment to meet with a certified financial planner and have a living expense analysis done, so we can find out something that's called the net margin. That number at the office, by the way, is nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. The net margin is the most crucial piece of the picture because we need to get your income minus your expenses to find out what you have available. Then that number, whatever it is, uh, you know, if that number is five thousand a month, then that's good because five thousand a month then would be able to go into uh, a particular investment program. If it's only two thousand a month or whatever, then then we need to go ahead and and use an asset allocation model to determine where to go now it's a it's a delicate balance in terms of selecting the vehicles but for sure i think you could be in either growth and income funds or growth funds or international funds there's no reason that you should be in bond funds if you're trying to go ahead and catch up even though you're 45 years old besides if you got a newborn baby or a little one you know you're working for the next 20 years oh yeah all right so with a 20 year time frame in front of you you could go ahead and do that the bottom line has to be to start with the dollar amount and then start figuring what vehicles, whether they be the internationals, the growth funds, or the growth in incomes, will meet the need. We have to get the living expenses today. We've got to inflate them to the target date that we want. And if it's a twenty year period, that's good. If it's a ten year period, that's you know, that's what we gotta use. Right. And then work backwards and see if we can go ahead and meet it with one of those three or one of those four types of vehicles. Okay.
2: I- Gil, if you'll call the office, I'll be happy to send you some of this information so that you can take a better look at the uh, living expenses. Okay. And uh, the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. Okay. That's 919-USA-7000. You take care, Gil.
1: Thank you, thank you Gil. Thank you. All,
2: right. all right, take care. Thank Bye-bye. you very
1: much. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us and for any other questions you may have call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.